Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. In early 1971, publisher McGraw-Hill Book Company landed what could have been the literary scoop of the 20th century. A writer named Clifford Irving pitched them that he'd obtained permission of the reclusive billionaire Howard Hughes to write a tell-all memoir of the aviator-slash-movie mogul. That manuscript, though, turned out to be one of the biggest literary hoaxes of the 20th century, and it landed Irving in prison. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. Clifford Irving was an aspiring novelist when he moved to an artist colony on the island of Ibiza off the coast of Spain in 1953. During the years he lived there, he wrote and published his first novel, On a Darkling Plain. He spent many years living on the island and wrote and published additional works while there. And that's also where he met Hungarian-born artist and forger Elmer Dehori. Dehori had moved to Ibiza in 1966, but he spent only two years there. It's a very different story for a different day, but the short of it is, Dehori was arrested for reasons other than his art forgery and fraud. Irving turned Dehori into the topic of a book, which was titled Fake, the story of Elmer Dehori, the greatest art forger of our time. That book came out in 1969, and Fake is a work that will pop up again in this story. Irving was living on Ibiza when he concocted an idea that changed the course of his life. In his own account of the scheme, which was never the exact same story twice, Irving later explained he got the seed for writing Howard Hughes' memoir after reading a magazine article about the billionaire's eccentric lifestyle, a piece titled The Case of the Invisible Billionaire, published in the December 1970 issue of Newsweek. We suppose we should say the idea for writing a fake memoir. Irving used the critical success of his as-told-to-him memoir of Dahori as a springboard for a new project. He convinced editors at McGraw-Hill that Howard Hughes had contacted him to express his admiration for Fake, 
and that Hughes had proposed a collaboration with Irving on a similar project. Excited about the pitch, McGraw-Hill paid Irving $765,000 for the book to be called The Autobiography of Howard Hughes. Life magazine bought the serial rights for $250,000, and Dell Publishing Company obtained the paperback rights for another $400,000. Payments were to be made to Hughes, but Irving requested that the money be wired to him instead. He explained that he would, as the writer of the piece, act as the middleman. The cash advance was deposited into a Swiss bank account opened in the name H.R. Hughes. So before we continue, let's hit some notes on this Howard Hughes guy. Hughes was a billionaire, tycoon, who was an aerospace engineer, businessman, entrepreneur, filmmaker, philanthropist, pilot, and well-known playboy. His life was big, and the list of things he attempted and the things he accomplished is long. Along with those accomplishments, though, he's often remembered by his eccentric behavior and reclusive lifestyle. Though undiagnosed during his life, stories of his battles with his mental health are numerous and, as it happens, range from truth to fiction. Modern experts, though, agree in hindsight that Hughes exhibited signs of obsessive-compulsive disorder throughout much of his life and battled misophobia, which is an extreme fear of germs. He also lived with chronic pain from a near-fatal plane crash and had increasing deafness. When Irving proposed the memoir to his publisher, Hughes, who had not spoken to the press since 1958, had just left Las Vegas for a new residence on Paradise Island in the Bahamas. To be clear, Howard Hughes was very much alive while Irving tried to pull off this hoax. Irving began by studying Hughes's handwriting from a letter reproduced in that Newsweek article that we mentioned earlier. He became confident enough to write in Hughes's hand and to fake his signature. For instance, he forged letters from Hughes to his publishers to back up the story that Hughes chose him to deliver his memoir. And no one questioned it. With children's book author and longtime friend Richard Susskind on board to help research, the pair began studying Hughes's life. They gathered old news stories and any reference material they could find. They spent their days interviewing each other. One pretended to be Hughes while the other interviewed him, and they would record and then transcribe these imaginary conversations as evidence of their meetings with their subject. In one of these fake interviews, for instance, the fake Hughes described his friendship with Ernest Hemingway. Note, this was totally fiction. Those two men were not friends. In another, fake Hughes described the breasts of actress Jane Russell. This one is actually a real story, but it's not what you might think. Hughes had designed a unique underwire bra to fix a problem with Russell's costumes on the set of his movie Hell's Angels. Suskind not only became involved in research with Irving, he would also become co-author of this project. We're now going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. When we're back, we'll talk about Irving's travels to meet with Hughes, his convincing anecdote about a prune, and how he was so self-assured of his hoax, he even took a lie detector test to back himself up. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. 
But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past, and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about what happened when Howard Hughes got wind of the upcoming memoir. In 1971, Irving traveled to Mexico to meet with a, quote, friend of Octavio's. That was their code name, more like code phrase, really, that he and Susskind used for Hughes. Irving claimed that he and his friend of Octavio's first met at 7 a.m. on February 13th on a mountaintop in Oaxaca. He also traveled to Puerto Rico and to the Bahamas to allegedly meet with his subject. Sometimes they talked in cars sometimes in motels, he said, and due to the nature of Hughes's lifestyle, it didn't seem strange to Irving's editors that Hughes would meet with a secret biographer on top of a Mexican pyramid. Note, they didn't. On March 4th, Irving reported to his editors he had finally officially signed a letter of agreement with Hughes in San Juan, and he delivered the fake document to their New York office. On March 23rd, Irving was officially signed with McGraw-Hill to pen the memoir, and over the next several months, in an effort to make his work seem authentic, 
His editors received calls from Mexico, Puerto Rico, Miami, and other places around the world where Irving claimed to be with Hughes. Later, it would be discovered that much of the time Irving claimed he was in parked cars with Hughes, he was actually seeing his mistress, the Danish singer and actress Nina van Pallant. On September 13th that same year, Irving arrived at the McGraw-Hill New York office with what he claimed were the complete tape transcripts of his sessions and interviews with Howard Hughes. In reality, these were those tapes and transcripts that he and Susskind had put together. Irving's hoax worked, at least in part, because he based it on what was largely genuine. Those taped transcripts seemed real. The manuscript he was drafting was written in such a way that accurate details about Hughes's life were intertwined with totally fictional elements. But it was convincing, and several experienced editors at McGraw-Hill and Life magazine found it convincing enough in its tone and detail about Hughes that still, no one questioned the work. But the truth was that Irving's manuscript was identical at many points with another manuscript that didn't belong to him or to Richard Susskind. It was penned by a writer named James Phelan years earlier. Phelan had been hired to ghostwrite Hughes's life story through a man who knew more about him than anyone else in the world, Noah Dietrich, who for 32 years worked for Howard. Dietrich was chief executive officer of the Hughes Tool Company, and instead of reading a whole resume and list, let's just call him Howard's right-hand man. There's no solid answer how Irving got his hands on Phelan's unpublished work, though there are quite a bunch of different stories about how it might have happened. Authorities believe it was probably in early 1971 and may have also included 150 pages of a transcript of tape-recorded interviews Phelan had conducted with Dietrich. Hang on to this bit. We'll come back around to Phelan in just a moment. If you're wondering why nobody from McGraw-Hill or Life ever picked up the phone to speak directly with Hughes about his upcoming memoir, there was actually a reason. Irving had included an interesting clause in his contract with his publishers. Because Hughes was so reclusive, Irving felt that there was a good chance that he would kill the whole project if he got wind of even a whiff of publicity surrounding the book. So contractually, it was agreed that the publishers would not meet with or contact the billionaire. Instead, Irving provided documentation to them from Hughes. Allegedly from Hughes. One, for instance, was a faked nine-page handwritten letter directed to the publisher about the memoir. But Hughes did hear about the McGraw-Hill book deal and the upcoming spread in life, and he, or possibly a representative for him, called a man named Frank McCulloch. Frank, then working in Time Life New York headquarters, was a journalist and had been the last person to interview Howard back in 1958. He hadn't heard from Hughes in years, and he took the call. Hughes was irate, insisted the entire thing was fake, and wanted this book deal killed. Irving had been betting that the tycoon's reclusive ways would guarantee the, quote, gorgeous literary caper would succeed, and he hoped, quote, Hughes would never be able to surface to deny it, or else he wouldn't bother. Irving obviously lost that bet. Although Hughes lived in total seclusion during the final decade of his life from about 1966 to 1976, 
he was not out of touch with the world, and his lawyers held a press conference about the pending memoir. The reclusive Hughes himself attended by phone, and they denounced the book as fraudulent. Hughes also denied Irving's narrative of their relationship and stated that he had never met the guy. Hughes's legal team then sued Irving and his publisher. And in response, Irving appeared on the television news magazine 60 Minutes a week later to convince any skeptics that the memoir was in fact real. He even shared an anecdote of how during his first meeting with Hughes, the mogul produced a bag of organic prunes and offered one to him. It's a quaint little detail. It wasn't at all true, as the two men had, of course, never met. CBS News correspondent and 60 Minutes host Mike Wallace believed and backed Irving's whole story. Irving now had a credible journalist, one who had been called a tough guy interrogator by the New York Times, give his work a stamp of approval on national television. Hughes's aversion to publicity and being among the public did foster some skepticism about Irving's claims to have actually interviewed the billionaire. But even though Hughes did call the whole thing crap, his reputation for eccentricity left some journalists believing that he was the one lying, and that perhaps he had regrets about what was about to be published. Irving kept this hoax going and insisted that he had several secret meetings with Hughes. He even submitted to a lie detector test at the request of his publisher. And though there were inconsistencies in the results, he passed. Eventually, McGraw-Hill hired specialists to check the handwriting that he had submitted as Hughes's against samples of Irving's writing dating back to 1936. A report by Osborne Associates, a highly respected New York firm of handwriting analysts, cast doubt on the authenticity of the documents Irving claimed were written by Hughes. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. When we return, we'll talk more about compelling evidence against Irving, and we'll talk about his trial. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. 
Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about Irving's trial and how the fake memoir did eventually get published. On top of all this compelling evidence against Irving, it turned out that Time Life, parent of Life magazine, had a copy of his manuscript for weeks. But during that time, they hadn't put together an investigative team to authenticate it. In fact, that didn't happen until after Hughes complained. And then it still didn't happen until five weeks after the call from Hughes' team to investigate the authenticity of that memoir. Said Donald Wilson, a Time Life vice president at the time of the hoax, quote, We made mistakes. I'll admit we got off to a late start in investigating the manuscript. A statement by a member of the magazine's staff at the time alleged that magazine executives resisted comparing the Irving manuscript with other possible Hughes memoirs that they knew about in deference to McGraw-Hill, which owned the work. But Wilson denied that accusation. He admitted, though, quote, We just didn't think of it. McCulloch also admitted it didn't occur to him either, stating, quote, I just have to plead guilty to being that blind. Frank McCulloch also stated he had known for some time that James Phelan had a manuscript about Hughes. And though the comparison did not happen with haste, it did eventually happen. Late one night at his lawyer's office, Irving received a phone call from Frank, who informed him that, quote, we've got the Phelan manuscript on the way to New York. Phelan's flying here with it. We're going to lay it down alongside your manuscript in the morning and read them together. According to McCulloch, there was initially silence on the other end of the line before Irving finally simply said, quote, Wow. When Phelan's version of the Hughes slash Dietrich book was read in tandem with Irving's manuscript, it was suddenly completely clear. Phelan's book was Irving's source material. In some sections, the two were identical. In February of 1972, Time Life reported that the Hughes memoir provided by Irving drew significantly from writer James Phelan's manuscript. Here's an example. In conversation with Phelan, McCulloch mentioned the New York Times had printed an excerpt from the Irving manuscript, an anecdote involving Perry Lieber, a Hughes press agent. The short quip goes like this, and you'd think it'd be a throwaway detail, but it became a significant problem for Irving. Lieber once had a moment where he'd been trapped by Hughes as he used a phone in gossip columnist Hedda Hopper's office, instead of making his call from an outside payphone as he'd been asked to do. That's it, short and sweet. And according to Lieber, there was absolutely no way Irving knew that detail. So when Phelan saw the excerpt during the comparison of the manuscripts, he knew it immediately. It was an anecdote included in his manuscript, shared with him by Dietrich. Susskind commented on this situation to the New York Times, saying, quote, Don't believe everything you read in Time magazine. Donald Wilson explained two possible and probable reasons magazine executives didn't properly vet the work, stating, quote, The manuscript itself sounded so real, and as it turns out, it was based on material that came from Dietrich, who was close to Hughes. And then there was the handwriting. Even when the handwriting proved not to be Hughes's, there was still a possibility that the material was really from Hughes, and Irving had somehow got hold of it. Ultimately, so much of the material from Phelan's book matched Irving's work that McGraw-Hill, after just a few hours of deliberation, 
announced that it had doubts about the authenticity of Irving's work. Life magazine also took action and canceled its agreement to serialize the memoir. In addition to the publishers, both the United States Postal Inspection Service and the United States Attorney's Office investigated Irving and his manuscript. The United States Postal Inspection Service is the federal law enforcement arm of the United States Post Office. Since a big part of Irving's setup for publishing his forged book had taken place using the mail, remember he'd sent forged letters to his publisher posing as Hughes, postal inspectors opened an investigation. They got a government subpoena to force Irving to give samples of his handwriting. Inspector John Tarpey told the Toledo Blade in 1973, so This is a recollection of the case after Irving's admission of his guilt. Quote, The writing we received was different from the Hughes documents, but close examination showed that some characteristics and habits were the same. The T's were crossed the same, the I's were dotted the same, and some letters were broken up alike. We took the samples to our own handwriting experts who studied them for two days and confirmed that they were the same. And then there was the United States Attorney's Office. Through his lawyer, Maurice Nesson, on March 30, 1972, Irving admitted that he had forged letters and that he had faked the famous billionaire's memoir. The United States attorneys stated that Irving was willing to talk in exchange for immunity for his wife. Recall that Irving had McGraw-Hill send Hughes' payments to an account Irving could access. That was to a bank in Zurich, And that's where Irving's wife, Edith, who was a German-born Swiss citizen, used a false passport with the name Helga R. Hughes to withdraw funds. If charged, she would face trial in the United States and in Switzerland. The Irvings promised cooperation if the passport forgery and bank fraud charges against Edith were dropped or at least lessened in Switzerland. At the urging of American authorities, Swiss authorities investigated the H.R. Hughes bank account and discovered that other than the deposits from publishers, every transaction associated with the account had been made by Irving's wife. It was problematic, as you can imagine, when Swiss banking authorities notified McGraw-Hill that the Mr. H.R. Hughes, the person they were paying, was a woman using the pseudonym Helga R. Hughes. So Swiss authorities, they were chilly, on the idea of leniency, but they agreed to consider it on one concession. If the Irvings returned the $650,000 that Edith slash Helga had withdrawn in Zurich, maybe she'd receive a suspended sentence. But ultimately, there was no deal. Some money remained and could be returned, but the Irvings had spent about $100,000, and authorities couldn't account for an additional $100,000. So things were most certainly, at this point, totally unraveling. Irving and his wife were indicted for a conspiracy to defraud through use of the mails and pleaded guilty in federal court. In state court, along with Richard Susskind, they pleaded guilty to conspiracy and grand larceny. Both men, as well as Edith, spent time in prison. On July 16, 1972, Irving was sentenced. He served about 16 months of a -a two-and-a-half-year sentence in federal prison. Edith served two months of a two-year sentence in the United States and 16 months of a two-year sentence in Switzerland. She also divorced Clifford post-incarceration. Susskind went a different path, and he refused to back Irving in court. 
In exchange for immunity from prosecution, Susskind testified that, contrary to his earlier affidavit, he had never actually seen Howard Hughes. His punishment was much lighter, and he served five months of a six-month sentence. The Irvings were also fined $10,000 each. While imprisoned, Irving was dubbed Con Man of the Year by Time magazine. The International Herald Tribune called the fake autobiography, quote, the most famous unpublished book of the 20th century. Irving later told the reference work contemporary authors, quote, I don't see it as a crime worthy of society's customary revenge. Had I succeeded, no one would have been hurt. If I had it all to do over again, I would do it all, with one difference. I would succeed. With Richard Susskind, Irving recounted the events of the hoax in the book Clifford Irving, What Really Happened. It was his autobiography, originally published in 1972 and then reissued in 1981 simply as The Hoax. In it, Irving wrote, quote, I had never realized I was committing a crime. I had thought of it as a hoax. And money, he insisted, was not his motive. He continued, quote, The whole Hughes affair had been a venture into the unknown, a testing of myself, a constant gauntlet of challenge and response. He also admitted that, quote, a certain grandeur had rooted itself into the scheme, and I could still spy a reckless and artistic splendor to the way we had carried it out. After his incarceration, Irving told the Los Angeles Times he had felt the scam was, quote, exciting. It was a challenge. It became an adventure. Of the book and that statement, the Washington Post wrote, quote, call it a prank, scandal, adventure, criminal conspiracy, or an early piece of fake news, Irving fooled lie detectors, handwriting experts, publishers, journalists, Swiss bank officials, and very nearly the entire United States. Over the years, Irving has offered different explanations for what he called the, quote, writing event. Mostly, though, as to why he decided to write the fake Hughes book, he deferred to the epigraph of the hoax, and a relevant quote from someone named Jean Le Malchanceau as his explanation. That quote begins like this. You may look for motive in an act, but only after the act has been committed. An effect creates not only the search for a cause, but the reality of the cause itself. I must warn you, however, that the attempt to establish relationships between acts and motives, effects, and causes is one of the most time-wasting games ever invented by man. When a reporter from Britain's Telegraph newspaper asked Irving who Jean Le Malchanceau was, Irving replied that he was a, quote, 12th century French philosopher. But then he paused and recanted that statement, saying, quote, Actually, I made him up. Any French speakers among our listeners may have noticed that Malchanceau translates to unlucky. So it kind of seems like a tongue-in-cheek way for Irving to convey that he felt the difference between success and getting caught was just a matter of bad luck. His follow-up tell-all became the subject of a 2006 movie also named The Hoax, starring Richard Gere as Clifford and Alfred Molina as Richard Susskind. Upon viewing it, though, Irving insisted his name be removed as a technical advisor from the credits, stating that the story, quote, took too many liberties. On his website, he wrote of it, quote, movie Clifford has the energy of a not-too-bright psychopath. The movie is best thought of as a hoax. 
Irving also published the work Jailing the Prison Memoirs of 0040, aka Clifford Irving, as an ebook in 2011. In 2012, his fake Hughes autobiography was published, also as an ebook under the title Clifford Irving's Autobiography of Howard Hughes. Clifford was the son of Jay and Dorothy Irving. Jay was an American cartoonist known for his syndicated strip Potsy, as well as covers for Collier's Magazine. He graduated from Cornell University in 1951, and though initially wanted to be an artist, discovering the prose and lifestyle of Ernest Hemingway set him down a different path. He began his love affair with wanderlust and writing shortly after college. He wrote roughly 20 novels and numerous works of nonfiction, though some of his nonfiction works have been criticized for inaccuracies. As a journalist, he reported on the Middle East for NBC. In his own words about his life, he wrote, quote, I traveled twice around the world before most people living in it today were born, stood guard in an Israeli kibbutz, crewed on a 56-foot three-mast schooner that sailed the Atlantic from Mexico to France, smuggled whiskey from Tangier to Spain, and one spring I lived on a houseboat on Dal Lake in Kashmir from where I rode horseback into Tibet. Clifford died at the age of 87 in Sarasota, Florida. Would you like a bogus bevy to take us out? I kind of need one. (laughs) Okay, the obvious one that came up for me is another one that is sometimes misattributed to its invention. Most people, I think, have heard of an aviation. You'll sometimes also see it called an aviator on some menus, but usually aviation is what it goes by. There is has long been like a false story that this was created in honor of Howard Hughes. Oh, really? No. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. This was first noted in writing, I think, in 1910 or I'm trying to remember when. But if you do the math, he would have been a child when this cocktail first appears in writing. An aviation, by the way, is absolutely delicious. It is two ounces of gin, a quarter ounce maraschino, a quarter ounce of creme de violette, and a half ounce of lemon juice. It's a lavender gray color. It's very pretty. I will say this one for bogus bevies, it does taste very different from an aviation, but it starts with the same bedrock to get that color, which is we're still using a quarter ounce of creme de violette and we're still using a half ounce of lemon juice. But after that, we're adding a quarter ounce of Saint-Germain elderflower liqueur and then two ounces of a pear vodka or if you can find it, a pear ginger vodka. And you're going to shake that like the Dickens with ice, of course, and then strain it into a chilled coupe or you could even use like a martini glass. This is a very spirit-forward drink. We have said this before, but just in case, you can, if you ever need to, dilute down a spirit-forward drink by adding some club soda to it or something like a ginger ale. I will say I tested that with ginger ale and with club soda. The ginger ale did not work. The club soda was great. Good to know. And that's one of those things. Listen, if you're ever out drinking and you buy a drink because you think it sounds interesting and it's too hard-hitting for you flavor-wise, just order something else from the bar, like a glass of club soda or a glass of ginger ale. You can pour it right in and fix it right up and make it to your liking. I did that recently in a bar for a good friend, and he was suddenly very happy. (laughs) It's super easy. There should be no shame in that game. If You should drink what tastes good to you. 
<laughs> we are calling this one Postal Inspector because I just think it's funny that at the end of the day, the Postal Service was really where things got heated up. Over the seasons as we've been doing this, I've been super impressed at what the Postal Inspectors have been able to do, especially when it comes to fraud. Don't mess with the Postal Inspector. No. This is another one where the mocktail is very delicious. You are going to use your half ounce of lemon juice in lieu of your quarter ounce of creme de violette. You're just going to use violet syrup. Instead of your Saint-Germain, you'll just use elderflower syrup. And then instead of pear vodka or pear ginger vodka, you can just use pear juice. And if you can't find pear juice available on its own, you can buy a can of canned pears strain off the juice you're going to want to dilute that down with a little bit of water because it does tend to be very syrupy and it's different brand to brand so you got to use your own judgment here if you want to make your own pear ginger just cut a slice of ginger throw it in there for not even that long 30 minutes to an hour shake it all up again and strain it off and then you have a perfect diluted pear juice to use with this the mocktail is super delicious the drink is very good but if you don't like tasting alcohol. You might not agree with me on that. Uh, But the mocktail is so yummy. So that is Postal Inspector. I hope you uh, never have cause to be inspected by the U.S. Postal Service because they're not messing around. No, they're harsh. And they will get you. (laughs) They always seem to. (laughs) Do not think that is a soft organization when it comes to such things. Throughout history, there are so many stories of the Postal Service being the ones that crack a case, or at least bring people to justice. We hope that there's no need to bring you to justice, just to bring you to the bar for something yummy, whether that be alcoholic or not. We are so thankful that you spent this time with us today, talking about forgeries and drinking bogus bevies, and we'll do it all again with you next week. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.